we uh, went to a spooky trail last week down in Tazewell. Went with myself, my daughter, and my eldest son. And uh, I learned that my daughter is pretty terrified of anything happening to her ankles. And I realized there are certain things, there are different things that scare each of us, right? We all have that certain things. You know, there were clowns there. There are people with chainsaws. There are people, you know, in all different kinds of masks and so forth. And we all have different things that terrify us. And, um, you know, while I was standing in line, there's this guy, and he's dressed as Michael Myers. And he's going around, and he's, like, you know, kind of chasing people. He's taking pictures with some people. And the group behind us was this little girl and her dad and her grandmother. And he kept coming around to the little girl because she was terrified. So he'd come along, and she'd go running, and he'd come around. He'd go bug some other people. He'd come back. Uh, eventually, his, uh, her grandmother puts her arm around Michael Myers and said, Hey, this is your new grandpa. He split. <laughs> so if you want to know what scares Michael Myers, it's apparently fear of commitment. <laughs> but yeah, you know, we all have different fears, don't we? Just like what may be scary for me may be entirely different to you. What tempts me towards sin may be different than, than what appeals to you in that realm. And with that thought in mind, you know, we're in this series, The Word. And in thinking of the ways that we use that term, I can recall when I was growing up, I can remember, you know, we'd leave a church service, and if it was particularly good, we'd say, man, the preacher really brought the Word today. And the title of this series, you know, it's kind of taken some of the pressure off of me, because no matter how this goes, when we leave, I can say, I brought the word today. But really, I think it's so cool that we're getting to discuss loving and having a passion for the Bible. You know, so often we talk about the Bible in terms of doing our Christian duty, when really the word is this amazing love letter that God has given us. You do understand that God did not have to give us the Bible, okay? He could have left us just on this planet saying, figure it out for yourself. Instead, he gave us this book that tells us about his love for us and about how we can get back to him. And I think that's amazing. So if you've been viewing the Bible as a burden or as a checklist item that you just have to, you have to read a couple chapters today, then I hope that you can start falling in love with God's Word. So today, I get to cover something that one of you requested, and it comes from John chapter 8. And when we look in the Bible, we not only get a picture of a holy God, there's almost also so much that we can learn about human nature, how we relate to God and how we relate to others. And I think sometimes we create this disconnect. You know, these are people who lived 2,000 years ago, but human nature hasn't changed. They may not have had Netflix, but they enjoyed telling and listening to stories. They didn't have sliced bread, but they had to eat, right? So I hope today we can learn some lessons that will benefit us, because technology may have changed since that time, but God hasn't changed. And people, at their core, 
really haven't changed that much as we probably think. All right, so Jesus was teaching one day at the temple in Jerusalem, and this happened. John chapter 8, verses 3 through 4, it tells us, The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Jesus, so Jesus is teaching, and along come these very well-educated, highly respected guys, and they bring this woman to Jesus, who has been caught in the act of sexual sin. And right off the bat, do they believe they have the moral high ground? Definitely. But they think they are so much more holy than this lady. And I'm not tolerating or excusing sin, but the Pharisees did not then, and we do not today, have the authority to decide which sins are greater than others. We all, we all want certain things out of life. You know, we want to be loved, we want to be understood, we want to feel like our lives matter. And often, sin is a result of trying to feel those good needs in ways that are less than what God intended. And we all struggle differently, don't we? So let's not get invested in her particular flavor of sin because we all have those things that are stumbling points for us. And if you're living a sinless life day after day, then you should probably be up here instead of me. It can be really easy for us to look at someone else's sins or shortcomings and say, well, I'm sure glad that's not me. We like to think we're enlightened. Maybe we like to think that we're tolerant. But I'm just going to state some facts. Uh, you, know, you know, we say things like um, so-and-so is having an affair. If you hear that, we can all turn into scribes and Pharisees pretty quickly, right? You hear the latest gossip, it's really easy to indulge that and want to listen. Sometimes we even try to discuss gossip as a prayer request. You know, we get on the phone. Well, nobody talks on the phone like that anymore, do they? All right, we get on the phone, you know, I'm not a judgmental person, but you need to pray for Bertha. I saw her down at Acme today, and let's just say she was not shopping for produce with her husband. Not that I'm judging, but we need to pray for her. We like to think we're above all that, but we all have a certain list in the back of our minds. You check that box, so God is probably pretty done with you. Do you really want to limit God by declaring that any person is beyond his reach? And I've done it before. And I have had to hardcore repent because I realized that's not my place. And that does not accurately represent the character and the person and the nature of God. We don't want to limit God in our minds and declare that anybody is unreachable for either salvation or restoration. No sin is beyond God's ability to forgive. So as a believer, do you really want to spend heaven and eternity there with a whole bunch of people that you thought, they are for sure 
not going to make it? Or would you rather be around a bunch of people that you sincerely loved and prayed for? I hope it's the second one. So we get on board with that, and we stop breaking other people's sins, and stop looking for reasons to gather and cast stones. We all have different temptation weak points. You know, I've never really been tempted towards alcohol. It never really had any interest for me. So what right do I have to trash someone who has to face down a temptation that I've never had to struggle with? See, the scribes and Pharisees, maybe they never did have to deal with whatever brought this lady to the point of adultery. Good for them, seriously. But they also hadn't lived her life. What I do not know is someone else's pain, someone else's experience, or someone else's temptation weak point. What I do know is that every single person I am ever going to come across is made in the image of God and loved by him. So the scribes and the Pharisees bring this woman to Jesus, and they don't even realize how prideful they're being. But they're about to learn. So in verse 5, they ask, Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? When someone says, in the law, comma, Moses, what are they referring to? The Old Testament, right? Specifically, the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So then the question is, what did the law actually say? What they were referencing, what they're referring to comes from the third book. Leviticus 20.10 says this. If a man commits adultery with another man's wife, with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer, I'm going to read that part again, both the adulterer and the adulteress are to be put to death. Have you ever been on a seesaw on a playground? Ever go on one by yourself? I don't recommend it. Because seeing ain't much fun without somebody on the other end of sawing. Some activities just don't work without two people. Seesaws, certain ballroom dances, checkers, adultery. They bring this woman before Jesus, and there's definitely someone missing it in there. I, I see that I see that you brought Monica. Where's Bill? All right. But um but there's definitely somebody missing here, right? So they're not really interested in righteousness because they're not even representing accurately what the law says. They're not interested in that. They just showed up because they heard there was going to be a judgment party and they were hoping there's going to be balloons and a clown. A few years after this, there's a Pharisee named Paul who becomes a follower of Jesus and eventually he writes a letter that we call the book of Romans. So former Pharisee Paul has this to say in Romans 14, 10 through 12. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For, as it, for it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me 
and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. So the word says, each of us will give an account of himself to God. Just to be clear, that is not gender exclusionary. So if you happen to be a herself, you have not found a loophole today. You'll give an account as well. So the word says we'll give an account of who? You're not going to give an account of me. I'm not going to give an account of you, right? Now compare that to some days we wake up and we ask, who do I need to straighten out today? So I'm just going to lighten your load and tell you, you are the only one on your agenda for today. God is never going to ask you why I lived my life like I did or why you didn't straighten me out. So what is he going to ask you about you? So when it comes to these sins that other people commit, learn simple phrases like, that's not my problem, and ain't none of my business. So Jesus is teaching, along come the Pharisees, and they're not tending their own gardens. They're like a neighbor looking over the fence, and all the flowers are dead on their side, but they're looking over the fence, hey, why are you using that particular weed killer? That's no good. They're not tending their own gardens. They're all up in everybody else's business. And verse 6 tells us a little more about their intentions. This they said to, to test him, him being Jesus, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Let's park there for a minute. We've already established they didn't really care about the integrity of the law because they weren't even representing it correctly. You know what else they didn't care about? This lady, whether she lived or died, didn't really even matter to them. That wasn't the point. She was just a means to an end. Either Jesus says, yeah, go ahead and stone this lady. Or, remember, they're in the temple, okay? This is the holiest place in their religion. So if he says she shouldn't be stoned, they're probably fixing to declare Jesus as a heretic, and stone him. Could you imagine being so indifferent to, to the lives of others that you're willing to lay down this lady's life just to make your point about Jesus? That's the danger in mob mentality. You get angry people together, and things like decency, common sense, and compassion head straight out the door. So don't be someone who just goes along with whatever the crowd's got going on. And some of you want to nudge your teenagers on this, but grown-ups are not immune to getting swept along with the crowd too. See, none of us want to be judged, but we aren't nearly as opposed to making judgments about others. So, for example, let's say you find a type of soap and you really like it. And you think, wow, I think Trav would really like this too. So you bring me a case of that soap that you really like. What if I take that as you're saying I'm nasty and I need to bathe? So I react poorly to it. I throw it on the ground or whatever. And you think, wow, he's really ungrateful. So now 
what you intended as a nice gesture, I've taken out of context. We've both taken offense to each other, and now we're stuck in the circle where I'm judging you, and you're judging me. All right, that example is a little out there, I realize. But you can probably think of a time in your life when you did something with very good intentions, and somebody misunderstood and thought that you had some kind of bad intention. You may not realize it, but if you've been misunderstood like that, guess what? You've likely been on the other side of it too, doing the misunderstanding. See, we want to be judged by our good intentions, but we judge others by our interpretation of their actions. We don't always extend the benefit of the doubt to others that we want extended to us. Sometimes we get upset about things that aren't even reality. You know, I came across this story a few years ago in a reading plan on the Bible app. Elvis Presley received a Bible from his aunt and uncle in 1957. And Elvis for sure read it a lot because this Bible is full of marks and handwritten notes. And I love this when it's on the very back page, and it says, To judge a man by his weakest link or deed is like judging the power of the ocean by one wave. It's really easy for us to fall into that trap. We find one thing that a person did, and we're ready to write them off. This one lady, she was caught in sin that one day, and they're ready to bring her to Jesus and have her stoned because they want to catch him either not being loving or not following the law. If you can't see people for seeing people's reputations, then you have taken a wrong turn. It's really easy to reduce another person to their sin. You know, back to John 8, verse 6. This is said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. It really looks like one option or the other, doesn't it? Either option A, pick up stones with us, or B, be the one on the receiving end of the stones. They thought they had framed the situation perfectly, then he chooses option C. Or in this case, it's option C-H-R-I-S-T, because he is going to do it his own way. And that's what we need to look for in life. When we're given options and none of them look like they're God's way, then we should look for another option. So let's be option C-H-R-I-S-T people. It's not always as simple as finding someone to cast as a villain in your life. Sometimes it's looking for what is God's will in this situation. I see two options. Is there a third? We have to do that. So verses 7 through 9 says this. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw, to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, by one beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. All right, so what do you write in the ground? Y'all have your theories? This is one of those really fun mysteries 
of the Bible, and this is one reason that I encourage you to fall in love with God's Word, but it doesn't really solve us for it, you know. Some people speculate that maybe he just started writing out the Ten Commandments. I've heard, you know, maybe he just started writing down their names and their specific sins. All we can do is speculate about that. But what we do know is what happened after he wrote it. Because this is where the confrontation happened. Whatever Jesus wrote, it confronted something in them. Why did the oldest leave first? Maybe I can speculate. You know, as I've gotten older, I'd like to think I've gotten a little wiser. I, I've by no means made it yet, but 43-year-old me is better at picking his battles than 17-year-old me was. And some of you, as you've grown, you can see that as well. So maybe the oldest had enough wisdom to realize this is not a confrontation I can come out on top of. But whatever Jesus wrote, one by one, from the oldest down to the youngest, it sent them packing with no stone thrown. And then with them gone, we get to verses 10 and 11. It says, when Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, woman, where are those accusers of yours? Side note, do you know where we get the name Satan? It's from a Hebrew word, Satan, and Satan means accuser. So you're never acting more like the devil than when you're accusing other people. Woman, where are, the, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Neither do I condemn you. Are you a follower of Christ? Is that how you would describe yourself? If so, would those words sound foreign coming off of your tongue? How Jesus treats people should be our goal in how we treat people. So given the opportunity to talk trash about someone, can you say, neither do I condemn her? Instead, when your spouse or your friend or your co-worker comes to you with an apology, would neither do I condemn you roll off of your tongue? Or would you need to give them a piece of your mind? Don't underestimate the power of following the example of Jesus and making others feel like they actually matter. Comparison is a huge barrier to living for God. If I look at someone who isn't me, then I'm going to draw one of two conclusions. Either one, I don't measure up, or two, I look pretty good compared to that person. Man, I wish I were half as holy as Tommy. I just don't have as much to offer as he does. Or, you know, everybody thinks Grandma is going to heaven, but with that potty mouth she has, I'm just not so sure. In either case, someone is going to get built up in my mind, and someone is going to get torn down. If we are busy condemning ourselves and those around us, for broken relationships, for failed marriages, 
or I wasn't being patient enough with my children, or how can they raise their children like that? That guy is so full of pride. If she loves Jesus half as much as she loves vodka, she'd be doing all right. When we say things like that, or we indulge thoughts like that, we're living in this cycle of A and B, where we're throwing stones at others, or we're throwing stones at ourselves, when we need to choose option C because Christ wants us to say, neither do I condemn you. If you really get a glimpse of God, it is going to affect you. There's something about an encounter with God that will change you and leave you out of sorts. Go over to the book of Ezekiel. He had a vision of God. After it was over, he said he sat there for seven days, shocked and silent. Over in Revelation, John saw Jesus in all his glory, and he said he fell down at the feet of Jesus as if he were a dead man. Jacob had an encounter with God. He walked away with a new name and a limp. You and I would have written off Saul of Tarsus, and he encountered Jesus. Left him blind for three days, but after that, God used him to spread Christianity around the Roman Empire, and he wrote half of the New Testament. The next time you wake up in a holier-than-thou mood, next time someone else's sins are too much for you to stand, pray for them to have an encounter with God and take your eyes off of them, look at a holy God, and then see how big their sins are to you. God hasn't made you and I responsible for condemning others. But at the same time, he does desire that we not live sinful lives. God doesn't extend grace so we can continue down the wrong path. Maybe you're thinking, Trav, you're telling me that I shouldn't be eager to cast stones, but then you tell me that we don't encourage sin. Maybe you're walking on a thin line. Yeah, it is. It really is a thin line. And that's one excellent reason for us not to compare ourselves to other people. If I want to compare me then I should compare myself to Jesus because at least that gives me a standard to aim for. But if I think that I may need to discuss a sin struggle with someone else, and there are times when, when that may be the proper thing to do, there is a good question I can ask that makes this line a little easier to walk. The question is, am I doing this to glorify God and benefit this person or am I trying to make myself feel bigger? Because that's the difference between a positive conversation and, and getting someone to, to walk back with God and delivering a verbal beatdown because I think I'm going to feel better about it afterwards. God doesn't care about shame. He cares about righteousness. And there's a difference. That go and sin no more. That's what he told her. That doesn't sound like the anything goes Jesus that some people are trying to peddle today. You know, When Jesus tells her, go sin no more, he's not threatening to follow her around with his own stone. You know, one more strike, you're out, lady. But he's telling her to leave behind a life defined by sin. And there are a lot of people out there today 
who want it to be both ways. You know, I can't be a proud Christian serial killer. I can't be a proud Christian gossiper. I can't be a proud Christian, insert whatever sexual sin we want to condone today in our society because society wants to say yes to the things that God's already said no to. I can't be a proud, greedy Christian. I can't be a proud, ill-tempered Christian. Jesus does not demand perfection, but he does demand that we choose a team. This woman's encounter with Jesus, it brought a change. Jesus didn't send her back where she came from to carry on with what she was doing. Guys, Jesus is a heart changer. He's a lifesaver. He's a sin forgiver. He's a freedom granter. He's our high priest and our example. He knows all about me, and he loves me to my very soul. So if he said, I don't condemn you, and so go and sin no more, I don't have to be bound by sin, by death, or by hell, then I'm going to put my trust in him. And I'm going to encourage you to do the same. Because there are some things you and I just can't do on our own effort. None of us have made it yet. We're all still trying to figure it out. So if something I've said today brought out some guilt you've been dealing with, then I want to encourage you, don't just hold on to the guilt, trade it in. God sent his son to impart his righteousness in exchange for our guilt and shame. And so the only one who can hold you back from forgiveness and from laying down shame and guilt is you. Take a deep breath in. You know what that breath is? It's opportunity. As long as you have breath in your body, that's an opportunity for those of us who are self-righteous and for those of us who realize how inadequate we are. Whatever side of it you're on, you have opportunity as long as you have breath. So are you living with guilt because you've already thrown a few stones at someone? Maybe there are hurt friendships, hurt marriages, hurt relationships between children and parents because of stones that have already been tossed. You can't unthrow any stones that have already been tossed, but you can make amends. And going forward, you can choose to be an option C person. You can love like Jesus loved. You can replace that past spirit of condemnation and judgment with a new spirit of love and compassion. All right? The Bible says there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Are you in Christ Jesus? If not, I'd love to see you put your faith in him today. The lady in this story, I think we'd all agree she was having a really bad day. She didn't have time to clean up her life. She didn't have time to get things straightened out and to be who she wanted to be before she met Jesus. But Jesus entered her story, and he told her, neither do I condemn you. You don't need to straighten yourself out. Jesus is calling to you, and he just wants you to turn to him. If you haven't done that, I'm here. Others are here who would love nothing more than to see you turn your life over to him.
So let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll hand it over. Dear Heavenly Father, I just thank you for this opportunity to be here. God, I just thank you for your word. It's such an amazing book that you've given us out of your great love for us. I just ask you, please, just help us to go out of here choosing to be neither do I condemn you sort of people. Help us to follow your example and be what you would have us be rather than, than be what the world would have us be. Just help us to go out of here. If there's anybody in here who doesn't know you, before they leave today, may they get that settled and know you as their Savior. First in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.